Before the Rings of Power, there were the Silmarils. Before Sauron, there was his master, Morgoth. Before Aragorn and Arwen, there was... Nobody expects the Torque Inquisition. Welcome, everybody. We are here back with a new episode of the Torque Inquisition, our detour into interviewing smarter and more intelligent people than us. Well, than me, at least. I won't speak for you, Michael. It's, you can uh, speak for me. Okay, awesome. Well, you don't need to be on. I'll just, no, I'm joking. I'm joking. Today, we have the <laughs> we have the pleasure, the privilege, of speaking with Professor Nick Groom, who uh, uh, is the author of the upcoming book, Tolkien in the 21st Century, The Meaning of Middle-Earth Today. I think it comes out September 5th if I'm not mistaken, on Pegasus Books. Um, and uh, Professor Groom is the professor of, let me get this right, because this is important, professor of literature and English at the University of Macau right now. Yeah. Is that right? And you've also held positions at the universities of Chicago, Stanford, and Exeter, uh, where you hold an honorary professorship. And I think most impressively, you, you taught the only undergrad course in Tolkien in the UK. Is that right? So yeah, um, for, for some years, uh, I've, I've since found out that there were other um, people uh, quite rightly doing so. But uh, we had a dedicated course when I was at Exeter. It actually started when I was at Bristol. Um, oh. I, I decided to introduce um, Tolkien uh, to a uh, to a course. It worked really well. Um, and then I thought when I got to Exeter, well, let's see whether we could do a whole course. And it takes in it's an introduction to Anglo-Saxon and Middle English. But it's focused very much um, on, on on Tolkien, and also because takes in films. That's, that's and I'm, a, now, and I'm, I'm, I'm now actually teaching teach out at Macau. Okay, so it's, it's, and I can certainly say it's the only one in East Asia. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Well, I don't. We could spend the entire episode talking about why every school doesn't have an undergraduate course in Tolkien. I think it would be a valid, valid thing to do. Go, go ahead, Michael. What were you going to say? Well, I was going to remark that that's it's a it's it's it is to, to build on what you're saying, Jonathan. It is sort of uh, maybe more expected nowadays than than um, one would think. But Tolkien has sort of become gone from sort of a fringe subgenre of literature um, back in at least when my parents and in-laws were were growing up um to now being a cultural icon across cultures across cultural icon and his works have been and this is largely the subject of your book dr groom was is that his works have essentially been taken on by the culture itself and now here in the 21st century his there, there, there's been blossomings of all sorts um, all over the place in every sort of media and uh, what I would hope to, and I, I'm going to return my theme in my questions is going to be to sort of get at the heart. And I, I did read, I haven't finished the book. I've, I've read most of the book by this point, but um, the get at the heart of what you think is the enduring, are the enduring qualities that Tolkien brings it, that allow his work to be so adaptable to everything from movies and theater productions and video games and the world. We were just talking before we started recording memes. about how ubiquitous the memes, you cannot escape Tolkien memes online. Um, and and it's, it's it's almost become part of the, the language of, of even of uh, millennial generation, Gen Z, um, and there were even those that have never read the books. They feel very familiar. Tolkien is like a, a familiar um, companion, friend, or maybe the neighbor across the street who you don't get along that much with. But uh, you know, that's it's Tolkien's. Tolkien has become 
a, a, a thread in the culture, which is almost who's almost unremovable at this point. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Uh, well, well, we'll jump into that. Before we do, I do have to shout out our supporters, uh, Harrison, Adam, Lynn, and Chuck, who give us a little bit more. Uh, they're the <clears throat> they're the top tier of supporters. They're the anti. anti mm, uh, what, what's the word you always use, Michael? The uh, freeloaders. They are they are the uh, pay for loaders, I guess. But they're the really ones. But then we also have our our, our four dollar members per month. You guys help us uh, keep the lights on here. Help us pay for uh, like this this system we're using, Streamyard, and all the other stuff. So we thank you very much. Uh, we are going to do an extended podcast. Oh yeah, go to the onewing.com slash member for that. We're going to do an extended podcast here uh, with Professor Groom. And we're going to talk about, I think, more in depth about the films, some thoughts about that. And I'm sure, I mean, there's so much here we can talk about. We could probably go for hours, but it's a lot later uh, for Nick over there uh, across the pond. And, uh, but we'll get into that. We'll get into the Rings of Power still. We'll get into, um, but there's so much detail in the book. So we're going to pick and choose some things. So um, I don't think it's going to be quite as free flowing as it could be because, man, we'd be here for hours. But uh, if you want to hear more, um, stay tuned for our extended podcast. Uh, and go to thewondering.com slash member to get that. And perhaps we should actually tell what Dr. Groom's book is called, the title. I already said that. Did you? Were you not uh, listening? I'm yeah. not a son. <laughs> I'm, I'm a freeloader today. So so, so first off, though, um, before we t talk about Professor Groom's book, Tolkien in the 21st Century, The Meaning of Middle-Earth Today, coming out on September 5th, 2023, on Pegasus Books. Happy Michael. Uh, <laughs> uh, I want to know how did you get started in Tolkien? What what was um, like? We talked with Ted Naismith a few weeks ago, and he talked about how his sister gave him the book. Like, where where did you get this love and this desire to make it like a literary pursuit for you? Where you truly you are teaching people Tolkien. You are talking about it. You're thinking about it. You're reading about it. You're seeing the influences of it. Um, where how did you get started, and and how did you get to where you are? Okay, so it took a long time. Um, I remember when I was eight years old, uh, there was a school reading competition, and um, somebody in my class, I still remember it very distinctly, read the opening of The Hobbit as his reading piece. And I thought, that sounds fantastic. I'm going to have to read this book. But it was in the school library, it was always out, and it was a couple of years before I read The Hobbit. And then um, I, of course, moved on to The Lord of the Rings, um, and so I'd read it when I was about sort of, um, I guess, 12. I'm trying to work it out in terms of the Ralph Bakshi uh, movie. Mm. Um, and read it and reread it as one does. Um, and you can actually see from my school books that all the um, notes in the margins I was making changed from little doodles of Spitfires and Panzer tanks. They changed to Elvish depictions <laughs> 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 of, um, you know, <laughs> Mordor and uh, hey, Matt Doom and so forth. So I've still got that evidence um, there. And then, um, of course, you know, there were one or two teachers at school who, you know, were enthusiastic, but uh, not in the English department, I have to say. They tended to be in, in sciences. So then I went to university um, and, in fact, uh, went to Oxford, where, of course, Tolkien had been and you know, wanted to study Tolkien. No way. Absolutely no way. Um, so um, Oxford in those days had no Tolkien tourism. There was no Tolkien walking trails. People will not believe this, but when I was a graduate student still in Oxford, one of the local charity shops was selling Tolkien letters. They had them in the window. I could not afford them. I could not afford the £50 because I was living on a shoestring. I, I mean, a number of times I've regretted that. Right. Right. Time to... Uh... Time to invent my time machine and go back and <laughs> yeah. clearly, clearly, son, son Don had cleared out his his filing cabinets and had just taken the stuff to the charity. Oh my shop. goodness! Oh my goodness! Yeah, 
Um, and so then I did graduate work and I wanted to work on Tolkien, but no, um, we couldn't do that. I mean, Oxford still has a, some sort of antipathy towards Tolkien. It's, it's, it's improved. Um, there's, there's, there's still sort of, uh, some, some sort of, uh, you know, remaining, um, you know, concern. Um, I mean, I, it was great for me because I mean, it meant that I had a, a, a class of Anglo-Saxon with somebody who actually had Tolkien examine his MLIT thesis. So that was a, that, that was a nice connection. Very nice. Then I, I started my own university career and uh, wanted to teach Tolkien again in those days. No way. You couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and eventually I, you know, got, you know, moved around, got promoted. And eventually when I got to become a professor, I thought, hang on, why are people telling me what to do? <laughs> why can't I teach Tolkien? You put the work try, in at this point. At least try it for a class. And then, you know, I found that, you know, this sort of lifelong love and fascination really pay dividends. And there's so much in the books. I mean, there's always a risk when you come to try to teach something that you've loved that you're going to find out that it was all sentimental, uh, that it's to do with a certain time in your life, and it doesn't really stand up. But talking, it was the opposite. The talking, I've consistently found more and more things there, whether it's delving back into Anglo-Saxon medieval literature, whether it's thinking much more experimentally about the nature of narrative or storytelling or the novel, um, and its context in the um, in the nineteen forties, nineteen thirties, nineteen forties, whether it's in terms of its relevance today, and then of course I realised that many of my students were coming to Tolkien through the movies, that added a whole new dimension, a very exciting dimension, I must say, uh, to the course I was teaching, so we could actually look at how Peter Jackson had dealt with adaptation, mm -hmm. and so I think it's a you know I, th I think it works as, as as a course, but there aren't many courses that can go from Beowulf to the Rings of Power. They can go from, you know, the that Anglo-Saxon period all the way up to the 21st century and have a consistent thread. Um, and so they can teach students um, about literature, language, adaptation, reinvention, medievalism, the whole range um, of, uh, of, of different cultural practices. Um, and so I'm now in the, you know, in a very privileged position uh, of being able to decide, you know, more or less what I, what I can teach. And I'm so pleased that it's uh, that, that it's, it's as popular in East Asia um, as as it as it, uh, as it as it was in the UK. So um, I've got great mm. students here now. Um, they often know more about the, particularly about the films than I do. <laughs> it's. Um... Wow. So in East Asia, you're, you're there. There is no dearth of folks who want to join your class. Like it, oh no, it's, it's, it's a popular class. Get very good, committed students, um, and uh, they are very, very well informed. Very well informed. Wow. I talk about people yeah. who, who know the history of Middle Earth, the twelve volumes, like the back of their hands. Wow. That that so. <laughs> So that's interesting because, I mean, it's almost like your book could also be, you know, it's Tolkien for the 20th century, 21st century, but Tolkien for the whole world in a way, right? It, it doesn't, doesn't. Well, I think that, <laughs> that could well be a follow-up volume. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's, yeah, 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 yeah. Volume two. I'm, I'll, I will be here for it. Um, so then that, let, let's jump into the into the book. Um, it's called, uh, make sure I get this right every time, Tolkien in the 21st century, the meaning of Middle Earth today. So why why this book 
Um, and what what prompted you to want to write this? Because I think maybe the best way to look at it is the I think as you mentioned, it's a post lockdown, post COVID type of book. Um, but what what was the what was the impetus for you jumping into this? Yeah, it's, it's a very interesting question. It's a it's a book I've always wanted to write, um, but I never sort of felt really in the position to do so. Um, and um, I've had a very good relationship with a number of publishers, um, Oxford, Yale, and uh, in Atlantic. And it was Atlantic who suggested it. I mean, I'd already talked to Oxford about doing a book on Tolkien. Um, and uh, I said, it's going to take me a few years to think about it. Uh, but Atlantic said, Nick, you're the guy to do a book. Rings of Power is going to be uh, released um, September uh, 2022. Let, let's do a book to coincide with that. And of course, it was during uh, lockdown. Uh, it was a very difficult period uh, for for very many people. I was I was teaching um, online uh, for much of that much of that period, and I, it suddenly seemed to be the right moment. Uh, it's a very tough book to write uh, because of hmm. the uh, because of the restrictions, but it's one that's yeah. I want to say this in in, in the right way that. Um, Often creative writers say this, that they're driven by a, by a diamond, by some sort of um, creative energy. Um, and it's true of the best academic work that I've, that I've produced. It's, it's, it's not a struggle. You know, suddenly you just turn on the computer, you start thinking, and it flows. Um, and I sort of felt this, 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 this book really, really, really flows. It was the right time to write it. Part of the reason it was the right time to do so was because the book seemed to be speaking so profoundly towards the experience um, of pandemic restrictions, of um, despair, desolation, isolation, uh, loneliness, the changes in everyday life, which makes things seem sort of like strange um, and uh, the remoteness for one's friends um, um, and family. That's particularly acute, um, you know, in, in the UK and in Macau. Uh, but I think it was the experience of many people across, across the world. And it really, for me, uh, helped to uh, revive the book and show that it wasn't just a, you know, a brilliant piece of fiction and world building from the past, but it was very much about the 21st century. And that's when I then got interested in looking at the movies in very much more detail and thinking, how is it that these movies uh, made uh, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, and then being you know, rebooted through the rings of power, hold such a fascination and such a hold over the, um, over the imagination uh, that they are you know, now you know, as significant, influential, as popular, 50 years, 50 years this year after Tolkien's death. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. Second of September 1973, he died. He could never have imagined no. the esteem in which he would be held as a global writer, let alone the multi-billion dollar industry. That I mean, it really so didn't become popular into. until the... Till the till the mid '60s, anyway, until it was published, like popular in, in as part of the Zeitgeist, until it was you know illegally published here in the U.S. in a paperback. Exactly. Yeah, it was it was that, it was that illegal paperback that suddenly yeah. you know his, his publisher suddenly woke up to the fact that people wanted to read a book that was an expensive luxury three volume hardback, which most people read from the library um, at yeah. that stage. You know, they, you know, it sold solidly, but not well enough to be paperbacked. Yeah. Then you know, they suddenly, you know, 
uh, George Allen and Unwin and um, Houghton Mifflin suddenly realised that they've got a paperback bestseller on their hands. They haven't, they haven't really understood <laughs> okay. it. Of course, the ir- ironic thing is that, that Tolkien then got hit with a massive tax bill. <laughs> and, and that's, that's what we had to start thinking about. That's one of the reasons why he then sold the film rights. That's right. And without, right. without, that, without that tax bill, so without the paperback, so without the illegal paperback, we, might, we wouldn't have the Peter Jackson movies. <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, it's like they were the, uh, the Napster of 1965. <laughs> yeah, it's right. very, very strange because, of course, you know, the, the, the estate's been, been very reluctant to license anything else. Um, and, and Tolkien yeah. wasn't particularly keen on the cinema himself. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, um, you know, once he, once he started start negotiating, he realized there was a chance to secure... The, the the future of his children and grandchildren, which is you know, of course, where every you know, every that's true. Wants to do. Although uh, I would, I would have not to say uh, the the consequences. I don't think um, you know. Uh, I mean, he was imagining a cinema world which was you know Harry House and Disney. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. and you know, yeah, he he couldn't imagine rotoscoping, let alone you know CGI. That's right. That's right. And it, it, until you speak to your last point, it is interesting that the 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 whole tenor has changed. The Tolkien estate is very, went into a very lockdown mode. Although I think an interesting case can be made that that was more of a, a function of the character of Christopher Tolkien than otherwise, because following Christopher Tolkien's passing, you see a difference in the, in how the Tolkien estate is now treating the licensing of products. Um, yeah. And, and so it was really interesting to see how, how, how I think it developed in the next few years. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I, I completely understand Christopher Tolkien's position. He was very much the guardian, the custodian, you know, he felt very keenly that he was a protector of his, you know, his father's um, you know, reputation and legacy and, um, you know, sort of creative um, achievement. Um, and it clearly would have been a mistake to have, you know, sort of sold the rights um, too, uh, too, too rapidly. And as we know from the sort of rather sort of checkered cinematic career of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings through the 1970s, um, right. It didn't really work out, <laughs> but right. there are things to be said about those movies that, that, that you know that in retrospect make them you know actually quite important steps on the way towards Peter Jackson's achievement and what we have today. Yeah, in some sense, you almost you almost need the false starts in order for for folks to try to. I, I don't think, for example, in the next uh, few decades anyway, anyone's going to try to remake Lord of the Rings as Jackson did it. I think I think it was successful enough that, but but Jackson wouldn't have been where he was if the 1970s had produced a wonderful edition and a well loved edition of of the yeah. Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Okay. So now so now people are turning to other aspects of the work. Nick, I wanted to go back to something you said, which was really interesting. It is it is tied into the whole theme of what I loved um, of of the book, and wanted you to hear more commentary on, which was. You said that Tolkien would never have seen, you know, the first the multi-billion-dollar industry. He would be very pro- probably quite surprised at the at, at the worldwide impact and that that his books have had. And I agree with that. And I think that of course he couldn't have foreseen something like um, like COVID. But yet you wrote this book. Part of the reason that you wrote this book was because the themes that the books address and that therefore then the movies address and and in different ways and other art addresses in other ways, music, actual visual arts, that these things had a resonance 
uh, my word, I guess, um, the, with with the with the, the post COVID mind um, that Tolkien couldn't have foreseen. What do you think? But there is something enduring about him. You don't get the sheer number of the amount of literature written about a work of a person um, like you do nowadays, whose works can't stand up to scrutiny, whose works are sort of flash in the pan. Um, you know. Uh, maybe an expression of a momentary cultural vibe, but in 10, 20 years, nobody cares. Tolkien people have cared about for a very long time. And so it seems there is something more enduring there. Can you, I wonder if you could maybe tease out a little bit more of what you think is enduring about Tolkien's themes that are that make it so relevant to the 21st century. And of course, I would like to remind our viewers, please buy his book. And so that, that you can find out for yourself. But since they can't at this point, maybe you can you can give them a teaser as far as those enduring themes. Yeah, that, that's, it's, it's, it's a very interesting question. I think it's one that's partly through the circumstance of when Tolkien was writing. First of all, Tolkien struggled throughout his life, particularly with money. And, you know, mm -hmm. we tend to think of him now, you know, this like, you know, waistcoated sort of tweedy Oxford don, you know, comfortably well off. He was not comfortably well off until the very maybe last four years of his life. And, you know, Two of those years were spent without his with his wife Edith anyway, so he was very much sort of living living on the edge. Although his doctor professor, he had four children. Hmm. You know, he was, he was he was working. You know, he lived through two world wars. Um, he had a very uh, sort of difficult um, and rather sort of precarious um, life. Now, one of his great strengths, and something which I've become to you know, understand and appreciate more and more. It's something that other Tolkien critics have pointed out, such as Tom Shippey, um, says that Tolkien wrote without a plan. Um, yeah. So, you know, one of the things I always tell my students, if you're going to write an essay, plan it out. You know, know what your beginning, your argument is, where it's going to end. <laughs> Unless you're writing a novel. <laughs> because that's what Tolkien just did not do. He was exploring Middle Earth. He was trying to discover the plot. I mean, he was discovering, that's right. Um, and so that's why, as people like Terry Pratchett said, you feel that you're learning about the land at the same time, not only as the characters, but at the same time as the author is as well. You know, Tolkien sort of famously sort of said, you know, well, I started writing the sequel to The Hobbit, um, and these black riders have appeared. I don't know who they are. Yeah, right, right, right. That's you wonderful. <laughs> or so, who Strider was think, at the time. Exactly. Strider, of course, as, as, as your you know, viewers will know, was you know, originally a, a, a hobbit called Trotter oh, wearing wooden yeah. shoes. <laughs> that group is talking revised, even if we The Dutch hobbit, yep. But that I think, um, that, 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 that's, I mean, some people say, well, Middle Earth is great because it's a very sort of self-contained, consistent um, world. And it's certainly very detailed, but it is not consistent. And it has so many loose ends. And that's the thing that began to interest me. It's had so many loose ends, so many false trails, so many unexplained aspects. Tolkien was he was exploring. And you know, it's like it's like that fox who sees Sam and Frodo when they're leaving the Shire. Right. I mean we get a glimpse into a fox's mind. We never again get a thinking fox. No. The same thing, you know, and a, a bigger and more controversial example with Tom Bombadil. You know, and Tolkien refused to explain. And he really, really said he didn't know who Tom Bombadil was, but he wanted to have that huge loose end. Yeah. You know, when 
you know, the hobbits finally get back to the Shire, Gandalf says he's going to go off and see Tom Bombadil, have a chat with him, rather than take the hobbits back into um, to, to, to encounter Saruman. So and that would have been a lovely, lovely conversation. There's also a bigger example about this, the inexplicability. And that's the thing that made me think that the thing that makes Middle Earth realistic isn't the fact that it's all explainable. It's the fact that it's not all explainable. Hmm. It has an internal logic, well, but it has lots of loose ends and lots of contradictions and lots of problems that you that don't really fit into the overall picture, and lots of things which then allow your own imagination to start working on that stuff. Well, and I so recently it, it, becomes, it becomes limitless in that sense. Recently reread, um, and we're we're going over on fairy stories in in our podcast, um, which is fascinating because I agree with you. I think there's it's Tolkien has this amazing ability to create. I mean, he did world building like no other, first of all, but he has this amazing ability to be incredibly detailed and ordered. I mean, I'm thinking about his struggles with getting the timeline right, for example, of of yeah. Of, yeah. of fellowship. The, well, the whole the whole Lord of the Rings, and he he wrestled mightily with that and didn't even do it perfectly by the end, but nevertheless, excellently, I think. So the detail was important to him, but he was also very comfortable leaving loose ends, like you say, leaving that creative openness there for others to come in. Even he, he yeah. talks about, uh, he gives gives quotes about that, and it, but so he had this balance, I find, between this world building and 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 what else could he do? I say because he believed in subcreation. He believed that this was the job of the the true secondary artist of the secondary world is to create. Well, if you take on a whole world that you're subcreating, you you can't um, expect that by the end of it there's going to be code written for every angle of yeah. of the story. It's going to have to be a, a, an endeavor which has so many open, so much openness and so many loose ends. That, that and I can see that meshing very very well with the 21st century zeitgeist. Yeah. Speaking of yeah. and also because he does it through character, mm. so characters often have very strong opinions about how they think Middle Earth works, but who's to say they're actually right? And so they have their own views. Um, and, you know, you know, you, you, I mean, Gandalf is probably the most reliable witness. Although I, mm. you know, he, even he forgets his own name, which is <laughs> 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 reliable. Um, so it is, it's an indication. And, you know, I, I hesitate to use this comparison, but there is something Shakespearean about this. That Shakespeare only presents characters in his plays. You know, yes, he has the odd chorus, but he doesn't have an omniscient narrator. And Tolkien is not an omniscient narrator. He's a playful, mischievous, often deceptive narrator when he is a narrator, like in The Hobbit. Um, but, you know, he really puts the the opinions and the worldview into the mouths of his characters. And they're the ones who are trying to explain how things work. And they can only do so with, you know, through their own lens, through their own understanding through their own frame right. of reference. I mean, a brilliant example of this is Sam, of course, who, you know, it's, it's wonderful to read Sam as he's traveling through Middle Earth because he's struggling to comprehend what's going on and then reaches towards the old tales and the songs that he's heard in Rivendell. And he sort of, you know, mythologizes himself within these, within these sort of bigger tales, which is it's wonderful. That's what, that's what we all do. Um, we sort of reach out to the legends and those uh, uh, other stories. Uh, really, 
Um, uh, but the thing is, it doesn't make it right. It just makes it a way of coping. And it's that way of coping that got me interested in how Tolkien can help us to think through some of the issues uh, of the of the pandemic. Partly because there's a very dark Anglo-Saxon quality to this, uh, which is, you know, in the, in the Battle of Molden, you know, the, the idea is that, you know, you know you are going to lose, but you carry on uh, because it, it's, it's better just to, to stand up. It's, you're not going to be victorious, you're not going to triumph, but it's, at the same time, it's not a defeat to fall, so you will fail. And mm. so much of, particularly the Lord of the Rings, is about failure. It's about failure, disappointment, um, and, um, you know, ultimately death. Um, and so I sort of, weirdly, that, that seemed to me to be uh, quite consoling, that these are forces beyond your control, you can't control them, but mm. it's important just to carry on. And that's that, why, in a sense, that, that, that's why he picks hobbits. That's why we don't, you know, that's why we don't have a company of the ring, which is, you know, Glorfindel and, you know, Elros and, you know, Aragorn. That's why we have four yeah. hobbits there, because they know how to carry on. And Tolkien having, you know, fought in one world war and lived through a second world war, you know, that's actually more important. Just, you know, just, just carry on. Um, and that's the best you can hope for. You know, you're, you're not going to You are not going to win, but, you, but you're going to sort of still be, you know, have have some sort of sense it, um, towards the end. It remind it reminds me of the the Chesterton quote where uh, he says, "You fight for what you don't fight because you hate what's in front of you. You fight for what you love that's behind you." Um, well, I, I, th I, think, I think yeah, I, th I think what's behind you, the, you know, what what they all learn very you know drastically is that they they, they can't save what's behind. Because the, the world is irrevocably changed, hmm. you know, right? They can't. Frodo not only fails, but then you know he's he's instrumental in destroying everything he cares about. And yet, and yet, there are still. I mean, Tolkien makes heavy use of of you catastrophe. He loves that, of course. Um, and so it's absolutely brilliant. Yes, but it's and then the, the brilliant you catastrophe moment. At, you know, at Mount Doom, I think is is, is a sort of is, is a very very powerful moment. But you know, the the, the book ends many times. That's right. That's um, right. And, um, you know, it's, it's interesting that, you know, we get that ending, then, then we get another series of other endings, and then we get the appendices. <laughs> so the book, much, nobody, much to the chagrin. Of nobody, the, ever read the, nobody reads the index. Who has read the index? I found echoes of that when people who are not Tolkien fans or readers of Tolkien watch the movies, especially the extended editions, and they're thinking, I, the, the, the comment I would sometimes get is, didn't this movie end like three times? <laughs> and, and the answer is, well, yes, that's in fact how Tolkien wrote. And, and yeah, it, was, absolutely. It, was a, it was a series of endings. And then, and there was, and, and this is a, a bad paraphrase of a Tolkien quote, but he did view the struggle as a series of long defeats. And mm. that's, that, that was his, the, it was an underlying theme of his. And yet punctuated, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, punctuated that's, that's, by... Yeah, by joy and about. wonder and you catastrophe. Yeah. So you have this, you you do have these this fascinating contrast in Tolkien between that underlying philosophy and then the but but also the celebration and exploration of moments of real joy and beauty and wonder, as you mentioned, Nick, through the mouth through the eyes of his characters most more most of all. But you can't help but think that Tolkien himself was also in kind of wonder at his own story as he's watching yeah. this character. I mean, you, 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 certainly, you certainly get those moments of um, blissful enchantment. Um, and I think, you know, 
talking in one of the letters that does talk about the fact that you know, the elves are still here. It's in it's in the murmur of the wind in the trees or the, uh, the sound of the street. Uh, but apart from that, you know, the, the enchantments gone. It's interesting in connection with the natural world. Um, but you know, those that sort of idea of um, victory no, no, is, isn't really isn't it's not really the point. It's just, it's just the fact of you know needing to needing to carry on and the idea of it's a long defeat. You know that that's fundamental to the character of Galadriel and also I think to a lesser extent to Elrond. But it's also something that Tolkien says in his letters about Roman Catholicism. It's just you know history is not a history of progress. That's one of the things that makes Tolkien distinct from, you know, this sort of like very British Whig idea of progress. That he sort of sees it as, you know, rather as this a is, series of, of, of catastrophic disasters, which just, you know, leading towards some, um, you know, sort of like dreadful, dreadful end. But that's why the Anglo-Saxon spirit comes through, that you, 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 you don't give up. You, you just carry on knowing that you are staring in the face of inevitable and imminent defeat all the time. So I, you know, weirdly, that is actually quite consoling, you know, particularly when you're faced with something as inexplicable as COVID nineteen. Yeah, isn't that interesting? You know, you know, you're not alone. You know, you know, you're not the only people who have stood here in history. Uh, Well, then that is that is it. At no at no point when they're facing the long defeats do the characters face it alone. I don't know. I'm trying to think if there's if there's even at the even at Mount Doom, there's two of them. Three exactly. It's a, really, it's a really brilliant point you just made. So I think it's really important to Tolkien that he's very much about camaraderie. Mm-hmm. It's about having groups of characters, even groups who you know don't get on, like Sam Frodo and Smeagol. It's that three or four in that group. Who knows? <laughs> uh, <laughs> three and a half. Yep. Yeah, three and a half. Yeah. Um, <laughs> even, even, even the company of the ring is, you know, it's riven with descent from the moment they leave mm-hmm. Rivendell. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, you know, he, but he, he knows that there's, you know, that, that there is there is some consolation in community rather than going it alone. Mm. And he, he very rarely has those sort of single characters. I mean, sort of obviously, uh, Turin is, is is an example. Um, and you know, it's become apparent that Galadriel's been presented as as being a singular character in the Rings of Power. But um, generally, they they you know you know in, in Tolkien's you know canonical works, they they they, they do tend to be together. Hmm. Uh, that would be an interesting study to me. You know, but me as perhaps not a study as either of you, but uh, to to look at these single characters who uh, are defeated in the end. We can talk about. Uh, Fingolfin and Fingolfin, yeah, I'll just say Fingolfin. I'll free right. There's more. There's more going on with Turin, um, and and he, but uh, I agree. Yeah, I will, yeah, but, so, but but even Turin has a companion for the longest time until he kills him, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, which makes him go alone, and things don't get better from there on. No, right. they do not. <laughs> well, I wanted to. The, one of the things I wanted to to jump into a little bit. Um, was something that I think a lot of people would look at the title of the chapter. I think it's called The Ambiguity of Evil, or just Ambiguity, Good and Evil. I'm trying to remember it. I'm trying to get there. I have the PDF. The the Ambiguity of Evil. The Ambiguity of Evil, which is something that people don't uh, don't don't explicitly say that there's ambiguity in the Lord of the Rings. There's people would say no, no, no. Good and evil are very much well defined in there. Maybe you can speak to that a little bit. And, no, and what no, no, I, 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 I don't think they are at all. I, th- I think they are. They, they, 
I think Tolkien is fascinated uh, by, you know, how things work in the real world. He's, he's not interested in the absolutes of good and evil. He's not interested in sort of like essential um, sort of like massive concepts. He's interested in how it works on the ground. That's why, you know, I think Bilbo is such an interesting character in The Hobbit because he persistently, you know, lies and deceives and thieves. And, you know, what, 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 what can you use a ring of invisibility, invisibility for? You know, what, what's, the, what's the moral good of, a, of invisibility? Not at all. Very, very <laughs> little. Be deceptive. Yeah. Um, and I think that, that that becomes much more significant in, in The Lord of the Rings, where he extends it into thinking about, you know, well, you know, everybody thinks, you know, the environment's great. Everyone thinks that the trees are lovely. Of course, maybe we all know Tolkien's a tree hugger and so, and so forth. But then the old forest almost destroys <laughs> the, the antiquity before it gets going. You know, they could have all ended up in the entrails of, of Old Man Willow. Um, and, you know, even, even the horns, uh, when we encounter them, and, you know, Treebid says to, you know, Pippin and Mary, you've got to stay out of the way of the, the angry ants. You know, this, this is, you know, it, it, it's, it's, not a, it's not a sort of placid um, pastoral version of nature. It's a very a aggressive, and it's also what I think speaks to us today is that it removes the human from the centre of things. And one of the great things about the Lord of the Rings, in particular, and I think this is more so in, in that book than it is in his other writings, is he's off, offering other perspectives. He's offering you know, dwarvish perspectives, certainly hobbit perspectives. He's offering wizard perspectives. Uh, but he's not assuming that everything is always human-centred. And in doing that, you know, when Treebeard speaks, you see the capacity of the ants for making sense of the world, but also the limitations. And so this is a, like, this is like a tree-based perspective on how we might think about the world. But we also see that it's not actually absolute, that it's got, you know, they hasn't heard of hobbits to begin with, which is a pretty sort of fatal um, oversight, um, I think. The passages where he gets into the mind of Gimli, I think, are amazing. Hmm. Uh, when he's talking about, um, you know, Gimli getting frightened in the paths of the dead. This is a dwarf who's grown up among rock and stone and mountains, and he's terrified. He's got what I call lithophobia. <laughs> and this is lithophobia seen from the perspective of a dwarf. And then you get this wonderful uh, passage where he's, he, he describes how, you know, Gimli's can't describe to Legless the beauty um, of um, the... Um, the caves the, of Aglarand. Yeah, the caves of Aglarand, yes. Um, oh, yeah, because you know there there aren't the words in Elvish. They're not concept in Elvish to think mm -hmm. about these sort of grottos of rock in the same way that there aren't words in Dwarvish to think about the beauty of trees um, of, of Fangorn and um, you know the organic sort of uh, life there. And Tolkien's way ahead of you know we're only just beginning to catch up with him in that respect. I think um, that thinking about a, a world which is based on non-human perspectives. There's been a lot of sort of philosophical works written about, you know, thinking, you know, how does the world appear to a bat? How does it appear to a river or a tree? This is very much part of contemporary uh, philosophy um, now. And sort of um, it's all, you know, implicit. It's implicit, it's not explicit, it's implicit in Tolkien. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, it's because he wasn't closing things down. And he wasn't a writer who was wanting to limit what he was doing. He was just letting it flow, letting it sort of open out and just like generate its own problems and contradictions and issues. And that's, you know, that's one of the great, I'd say about his environmental writing. And so I'm often arguing with people about this is that, you know, no, the environment is not 
pleasant than Tolkien. You've got, you know, Karathras, who was evil long before Sauron was evil, mm-hmm. for example. Um, so you've got, you know, you've got mountains, you've got forests, which are absolutely inimical to sentient life. You know, the trees hate those that can walk. So it's not all like nice and cozy. Um, even even the it. even the trees that can walk hate those that can walk. <laughs> so so uh, what what's always fascinating to me again to make the connection with um, on fairy stories. Tolkien is is talking about the connection how it's a fairy story requires gets capital F fairy story um, yeah. requires the understanding that the world of fairy is is utterly different from ours and the denizens of fairy have different perspectives they have different motivations they don't even care about us that much and above all they're they're very perilous it's 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 dangerous to be to walk in their world because it is their world and and so you know and and a true fairy story is an adventure that a non-fairy has and the fairy the world of fairy as and i think he would consider lord of the rings to be a true fairy story and where fairy exists in lord of the rings most of all as you've pointed out nick is the 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 forest you have the old forest you have uh lothlorien which is perilous because of the elves that are there and 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 you have the fangorn of course um and in each case there's the perspective of old man willow and tom bombadil in the old forest who are different from each other but they're they're very different from everybody else and you have the perspective yeah, yeah. Of, of the elves in lothorian utterly so so different from ever from humans that the rohirrim view them as basically witches and yeah and, uh, yeah. and, and malicious and then of course you have treebeard who makes it all explicit and, and says essentially no one looks from our perspective there's no one standing up for us this is this is a, a an entirely different in, in other so when i hear yeah, that i, 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 I other people trust trivia but he's wrong about that because of course gandalf is and true but but it, gandalf, it, 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 gandalf is an it, exception it, though right well it's certainly saruman saruman had been uh, so uh, Gan- uh, gandalf yeah, radagast so you got two people yeah. that care about him <laughs> radagast is one of those sort of like way with characters but also the interesting thing is about, you know, characters like Old Man Willow or like the uh, the Barrow White are not connected to Sauron either. Correct. You know, they're, they're like Karathras. So there isn't or something Karathras, like yeah. men with evil and the forces of evil are all, you mm-hmm. know, and forces of good. There are these sort of things that are inexplicable. It's like when Tolkien Day goes down below where the dwarves delved in Moria and found that there are further, you know, subterranean passages. This is the whole subterranean history of Middle-earth that we know nothing about. There are there are other you know histories, other stories, other worlds there, um, and it's it's like a fell beast that you know where there's where the Sauron got that get, get those from, and there's there's some sort of weird prehistoric hangover. So you know he, all the time I think he's um, he's presenting as far as he can, and as far as we live our own lives day to day, we think that the world is consistent. But you know we know every day that the people disagree with us, that there are sort of like contradictions mm-hmm. in the news. There are all these ambiguities, and he's just you know he's just brilliant. I think capturing those in yeah. the context of Middle Earth, and that's what it makes it believable because because it's not consistent. Hmm. It's not believable because it is consistent. It has the appearance of consistency, which is what he says about Beowulf. But it's not consistent because because you don't know the back history of it. 
is of deep history because it's got these references to other works, but we've lost the other works and we don't know about them. Yeah, that's well, really true. It it goes back to I, I want to I'm going to bring this all the way back to when you said how you tell your students to uh, when you write an essay you write you you have to create the structure for it. <laughs> Um, and how Tolkien, when he wrote his novel, he was discovering that as he went. But here's the difference that I want to bring up, bring up, and the, the kind of, and, and as you're saying, right, we are experiencing Middle Earth in a similar way that Tolkien wrote it. We're discovering it as he, as he, uh, as he wrote it. Um, but he had a world to walk through because he'd been creating it since 1915. Uh, yeah. Um, and so it wasn't it wasn't like he was he, he just sat down to write. He was sat down. He sat down and he discovered all these places that he already knew about somewhat but he just didn't know what was well, there i mean yes, you, yes, uh, yes no. maybe, um... i mean he's written the history of the first age in many different versions mm -hmm. but now he's writing a story that's based in the third age with a whole element of the rings that hadn't even occurred to him when he was writing the first age stories yep isn't that but interesting he, yep he, I, think, I think it's amazing that he, he, he's able to completely recast the silmarillion based on the fact that he's discovered a new aspect of the story I mean, just as for the Hobbit, you know, because the, exactly. the dwarves were originally evil characters yes, in, right. in, in evil species. Now, I use the word species, and this is one important point in my book. They are species, not a race. They consist of different races. Hmm. Um, mm -hmm. They're a species. Mm -hmm. So he began to rethink the dwarves after having written the Hobbit. And, you know, the Hobbit is midway between Middle Earth and our world and becomes more yeah. Middle Earth, yeah. um, of course. Now, with with the Lord of the Rings, that 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 that, that, that process continues because you know, yes, you're completely right that you know the first age stories were there and they do figure quite prominently in Beren and Luthien, in uh, Turin Taramba, and so forth in in the Lord of the Rings. But you know the whole story of the Rings wasn't part of his original conception uh, with the Book of Lost Tales or or any of the sort of subsequent great tales. Do you know then? I'm just curious. I don't know if I've ever had an answer to this question. Is uh, how much of the Second Age was written? before the lord of the Rings, because wow, there's so much is... in there that ties right into the lord of the rings or was that was that you know like for instance aldarion and erendis is that something he sat down and wrote and because it was interesting has no has no bearing really i mean you could say the, the one comment about how he's uh, sent back and he's a great elf friend and there's you know danger we just don't ever find out what that is in, in that story but it, how much of the second age was written before the, the lord of the rings i don't, I don't think i've ever come across that I don't know. That's, that's a really interesting question. I mean, I mean clearly, clearly Numenor had been on his mind for many years. Right. In, but that started uh, as that time travel story, right? Um, it's, in, it's in The Lost Road. Lost Road, uh, right. Another right. example. Yeah. Um, although it, it, in that it develops into more of a sort of like a sort of like Nazi um, sort of totalitarian state. Hmm. Um, and it's also, you know, it occurs in, um, in the Motion Club papers as well. Uh, which you you know this weird not unfinished obviously he writes in the middle of the lord of the rings <laughs> i know as a challenge with c.s lewis he's like we're just gonna have to you write you write the story of chronicles of Arnie, and i'll write this time travel tale or he wrote he wrote right it was a he would write a sci-fi space story and space, then he, 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 the time travel story which was lost road and uh lewis went off with the um uh, with with the space um, travel story, but then uh, the, the Notion Club was a was was a sort of it was a distraction. I mean, he couldn't finish the two towers. He was sort of writing another novel. <laughs> he, he he couldn't continue. Then <laughs> he, he was taking the road not taken at that point in order to figure out what was going yeah. on in Middle Earth. Well, yeah, it's really, I mean, I think it's, I think it's one of the reasons why why, why Numenor haunts the, the the Return of the King, particularly. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. He was he's trying he's trying to sort of like make make sense of this. You know, this this dream is having and this 
fascination he has with with the sunken sunken land. That's right. It's and by the dream, you mean the dream of the uh, the wave overcoming uh, the, yeah. the 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 land that he's on. We had this which, persistent course, dream since which, childhood, right? Which he which he had until he bequeathed it to Faramir, and then mm -hmm. when, when he gives it to Faramir, he stops having it as a recurrent. Huh. Whoa. I and did not know that. Claimed. Well, that's what he claims. I mean, you've got to be quite, you know, you've got to be a little bit skeptical yeah. in authors. <laughs> Start telling stories. He just dreamt, he, he stopped dreaming it. He dreamt about Faramir dreaming it, which went I really don't know how much the second age has been written yeah. uh, uh, or, or mapped out. It's interesting that it's, he, he thought it was important enough to include in the um, Tale of Years and the, in the appendix in Lord of the Rings. Mm. So he clearly thought it was Yeah, that's true. So he did, yeah. Hmm. Well, um, I, don't, I, I, before we we move into our extended edition, I do want to talk a little bit about the Rings of Power because you do you do commit a section of this book to the Rings of Power, not necessarily yeah. as a review. Yeah, I don't think, it, but what, what's written is not written as someone who's watched it. It's written as as uh, an examination of uh, what it could be or what it is in the in the. No, the no. Um, okay. Correct me. Yeah. The, the advanced copies that I think you two have received don't include this extra section. Oh, okay. So I did misunderstand that. Yeah. Good. So this um, the the US edition, which has a slightly different title to the UK edition, but it's the same book, has this extra chapter, which will be in the UK paperback, um, and that covers the first season of the Rings of Power. Oh. Um, so the the, the, la the last few pages of the, the UK first UK edition included comments from um, interviews with the actors um, and the showrunners and so forth. Well, of what could be cleaned, but th there is going to be a, a new chapter in the U in the US and the UK paperback edition coming up in September, which is, okay. is my my first thoughts on the Rings of Power. Okay, well, um, I will be completely honest and. Um, uh, and and I'll say I'll preface this by that uh, by saying I did not like the Fellowship of the Ring when I saw it in, in 2000. I thought it was 2001. I thought it was disastrous in my head. And granted, I was much younger. Was nearly, <laughs> so I, right, right, you know why? I was sitting next to my sister-in-law at the time, who was just newly married to my brother. And uh, <laughs> once they hit Rivendell, she's like, "Is it over?" It's like they're going to go on, and then we hit we hit uh, what uh, what people on our forums back in the day called um, nuclear Gladriel. We hit that, and she's like, "Oh, she's evil." I'm like, "No, she's not evil." And so, and then Aragorn. It's, there, there are these things. There are these sort of um, these touchstone moments that ruined my experience. I've come around in the meantime, particularly by the end of Return of the King. I, I, I'd come around and I, I enjoyed the films, but my perspective, for good or ill, has always been very uh, you know the word that's thrown around is always purist. Um, and so w watching the rings of power is very difficult for me because it is completely different than, yeah. um, than what Tolkien wrote in the second age. Uh, and so, uh, for lack of a better term, we kind of savaged it because we just didn't, I just, I just can't stand it. And, and, and in the same way, like it didn't like the Hobbit at all either, because it was felt so, when it, when it takes, um, longer to watch the films than read the books, it feels like something's yeah. gone wrong. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so the Rings of Power, similarly, they, they, they do things I, I think they didn't need to do, which is compress the timeline. I think they could have done uh, what other shows do is they, they, they have, they could have, I mean, they could have the same uh, through line of particular characters and then change the humans, so to speak. But I, I just like, I'd love to get your insight on it and, you know, uh, clarity rather than agreement in this situation. Like if you, 
people can love it. That's that's great. But you know, we can agree to disagree on certain things. I'm just curious, like, what, what was your take on the Rings of Power? And you've you've I mean, you've talked to to, to the actors and perhaps some of the uh, the directors, the crew. What was your take on? No, no, I haven't talked to anybody di um, directly. I mean, I was just oh, okay. taking quotes from, uh, from, from interviews. I mean, I'd, I'd really love to talk to people um, involved, but um, they're not very easy to get access to. No. Um, if I could just sort of, it's just, it's just preface what I'm about to say with, with, with a comment that the, the, the book I've just, just written tends to focus on the works published in Tolkien's lifetime. So that's 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 one Tolkien. Yeah. Tolkien yeah. who, with regards to Middle Earth, published The Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, the Songs of Tom Bombadil, which nobody talks about. And that's pretty much it. Um and there, there, and there are a few letters in, in, in newspapers and interviews and so forth. Then he subsequently said a great deal in private correspondence. And we now know because there are sort of like what is it, eighteen volumes of Middle Earth books being published, plus the film, really, of course, and, which, and he plus, which he wanted to publish. But yeah. Tolkien in the next few months, I think, too, with something like 40 new letters. Uh, yeah, I mean, there, there, there have been a lot of these letters floating around the internet for a while as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, through auction sites and so forth. Um, but one of the criticisms that I had from, you know, very sort of, you know, informed Tolkien fans was saying, well, you know, you say that sort of, you know, Frodo and Bilbo go through to Valinor and are therefore, you know, immortal. But in his letters, he later says this. So I said, but he might say that in his letters, but he doesn't say that in his printed works during his lifetime. So, you know, we, 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 we were dealing with what, what did the books say? Mm -hmm. You know, trust the work, not the author, as T.S. Eliot said. Or what the author subsequently says 15 years later in a private letter or in notes that aren't published until you know, 20 plus years after his death. So that's the first thing. Um, and I think that, that, that that's a bit of a sort of, it's a bit of a sort of, it's a bit, it's a, it's a sort of, it's a tripwire, really, that you, you can learn a huge amount about Middle Earth from reading the history of Middle Earth and the other volumes. But is it, how is it reflected in the works that were published and made his name and which, you know, took you to those works in the first place? So... So technically, would you include the Silmarillion as part of the works that he wrote in his life? No. Because you know, there's the whole argument about Christopher Tolkien and, no. and uh, Guy Kay working on it. I know, I know. And, it's, um, and then the version they produced, I mean, it, it was, you know, fairly rapidly came in for criticism because of the role of Galadriel, for example, that was, was very much played down. Um, and the Silmarillion is a real problem. Uh, you know, we all would have loved Tolkien to have published a version of it. But the reason why he didn't is because he couldn't finish it. And he couldn't finish it because he kept on changing the characters. And one of the main characters is, is the role of Galadriel. Um, you know, if you read the earliest versions, you see how different, you know, these yeah. uh, the characters, the conflicts are, the whole presentation, the whole tone is very different. So, you know, it's, it's, it means it's great fun <laughs> for us all to argue about now. But I, I think that's why we have a podcast. So let's let's be let's appreciate that just a little bit. <laughs> but I think we also we also need to bear in mind that you got to give some integrity to the books that were published in his lifetime and how you know they were received. And that's precisely yes yes. Uh, and I'm a huge fan of that of of the the a good work 
stands to its own interpretation without, exactly, without what, yeah. what the what the other what the author might say afterwards or beforehand or even yeah. well you know in ancillary um, communications while he's creating or she is Precisely. creating. So 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 that I'm a big fan of that. I also, but I recognize there's sort of three Middle Earths in a in a sense. There's the published Middle Earth that Tolkien, as yeah. you as you, as you spoke to, there's the Middle Earth that is formed of all the ancillary literature, uh, yeah. the biggest chunks of which were gathered by Christopher and the and the various folks that worked with them, and and that we have now we're now privy to through his you know yeah. Tolkien's own thought process. So it's Middle Earth in this sort of cloudy, expanded way in my in my the way I look yeah. at it. And then there's the third Middle Earth, which I find fascinating in your book, which is the third Middle Earth, and you don't get a, a whole lot into it because you do spend an, an unbelievable and amazing amount kind of wondrously bewildering swirl of summary of Tolkien's life. I was, I, I was, I loved your, I loved your treatment of um, how you in a very personal way followed his, the patterns of his life. But there's this third middle earth, which is the product. All great literature produces in people who experience it, a reaction to a greater or lesser extent, a reaction where we want to interact with it and maybe create along with it. And yeah. so you have things like, the, the the films in the 70s and then yeah. the jackson films you have i'm a big you know i'm a big gamer I've, I've i've played lord of the rings online since 2007 and and so the world of video games and how that interacts the world I mean, we're about we're about to have more of the rohirrim come out which is a, yeah. a different a different kind of uh, visual medium you know what so, it is can i can i say let's define it like i think in fairy stories he said it's not it's not the the world you believe in it's the world you desire it's like the desired middle earth is kind of what you're talking about it's the one that we right and because there are other desiring agents than the author himself right that's right then then you have a, this third middle earth which is the product of and, and it's and it can have a life of its own and it can express itself yeah, very okay. differently yeah. from the way yeah. tolkien i guarantee you if tolkien were for were alive and forced to write a story about the second age in Galadriel, he would not have written what the Rings of Power writers were. He would have written something different. Oh yeah, yeah, we, we, without a doubt. But the thing is, I mean, what what's interesting in, in terms of that third world? I think you're quite right, I and mean, that's exactly how I'd phrase it myself. That there is this sort of third Tolkien world, but it's also very consistent because they, you know, Peter Jackson, the films are very aware of what went before in terms of the radio adaptations, the earlier movie treatments even the films that weren't made, such as the John Borman movie, which I think is, is, is fascinating. For all the... I mean, I remember going to see the Ralph Bakshi um, Lord of the Rings, released in the US in 78, released in the UK in 79. I'd already read the book at least twice and being horribly disappointed by it because it just did not live up to... That's me what too. I yeah. hope me too. Having I was, yeah. thought about it again... Um, in the context of writing this book, I realised what he was trying to do. He was an experimental filmmaker, and Tolkien mm -hmm. was an experimental writer. And what the studios were trying to do was to, to get somebody who was cutting-edge, edgy, experimental, to do something different that would push cinema in a new direction. It turned out that rotoscoping wasn't the answer, although Bakshi's films before and after were actually you know, pr pretty good. Let's not talk about Fritz the Cat. Yeah, no. Uh, <laughs> but so, this is not the show for that. Right. <laughs> Something similar, however, happens with, with with Peter Jackson, because of his you know commitment to developing the the way to workshops, to using CGI and mocap, also to working outside of Hollywood, 
um, in, in, in New Zealand, but also being acutely aware not only of Tolkien's own writings, but of the Bakshi version of the BBC radio adaptation of the Rob English audio book, and also of those earlier animations, even the earliest Hobbit movie, I think. You know, he actually was able to build on all of that. So there's a real canon of this sort of third Tolkien, as I think you quite rightly described him, in which these aren't independent uh, productions. They're very aware of what's going on. And then, and then the Peter Jackson materials gets, you know, deliberately built into the video the computer games, you know, through or the authors voicing extra stuff and through the representation. And with the Rings of Power, we see, you know, endless you know, acknowledgements and references to the Peter Jackson movies. In fact, more yes. so sometimes than to Tolkien's own work. They are very sort of deferential. They're, they're very aware that they're part of this, you know, tradition, which I think is is, is, is rather wonderful. They're, they're, they're very respectful. It's a very respectful um, series. And you're quite right that Tolkien would not have written Galadriel in the same way. But then, you know, Tolkien died 50 years ago, sadly. You know, it's... <laughs> it's well, a well, what does he know about what, what 12-year-old girls want in the 21st, early, you know, in, the, in 2023? <laughs> my, my, my daughters are thrilled by Galadriel. I think Galadriel is a really complicated and difficult character. And that's one of the things I say is that, you know, she's you know, absolutely thrilling for a teenage girl to watch. You know, one of the great things about the Rings of Power is they've got strong female leads that are not sexualized. Um, you know, you've got Bronwyn, you know, Nori, uh, Muriel, um, Deza and obviously Galadriel, you know, they're great role models. Yeah. Um, and, they're, and they're not sort of, you look, you look at, you look at sort of the, uh, the, the, the fantasy female superheroes, the 1970s, um, you know, they're, they're all wearing sort of skimpy bikinis and sort of fighting, you know, trolls wearing virtually nothing. These are genuinely complex female characters. Um, Tolkien was a great supporter of female education, um, of female opportunity in academia, and I think he would have approved, but he wouldn't have done it in the same way, um, in, 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 in any sense. But I think that you know you have to write for your audience today, rather than trying to produce a bit of you know what I, might have happened in the sort of 1950s. So, so this is this is where probably is a place where I you know I, I disagree is a strong word where I, I take a different perspective. I feel like. Um, feel like no, I hate saying those words because it doesn't give me any sort of authority. Uh, Tolkien wrote strong women, particularly in the first age. You could say um, uh, Halleth would be one. Yeah. Uh, even Neonor was one. Uh, yeah. uh, you know, uh, Melian, uh, all the Varda, and you know. Uh, so there were many strong characters. What I feel like we get in today's culture is strong woman means she can carry a sword and be a big man. So for instance, in the Rings of Power, uh, the very first scene we get with Galadriel is her slaying the snow troll or the ice troll, whatever. Snow troll, yeah. yeah. And not having, like, it's not a struggle at all. It's, she's, she's perfect already. She can destroy it and everybody else can't, can't do anything. And so I feel like what they're doing immediately is setting her up as the male equivalent. It's kind of like, remember the Ghostbusters movie from like 2018 where they're like, we're just going to take all the men and make them into women. And it's just like, no, no, no. But except okay, then okay. she's turning to have really deep flaws. And that's when it's, that's when the Rings of Power got interesting for me. I did start watching it um, when I was actually in quarantine, and I, it didn't really work in quarantine. I was uh, uh, trying to get back to 
to me. Kind of, I've watched as I said, sort of, um, I watched the whole season three times now. Mm-hmm. What's really interesting is that these characters aren't presented as being, you know, ideals of, you know, fighting prowess or of um, sovereignty um, or of leadership. Galadriel's a fundamentally flawed character in the Rings of Power. She's got no diplomatic skills. She's got an absolutely towering sense of her own entitlement. She's unbelievably arrogant. What a great character. What a brilliant character. (laughs) So I would would see, I would agree with you, Nick, if that character wasn't, didn't have a different vibe from the, the, the Galadriel that we even catch hints of in Tolkien's um, uh, but we do. That, that's one of the, the nice thing. One of the nice thing about him is power is you know Galadriel when she talks to Frodo, she says, you know, I know the Dark Lord's might. You know, this is one of the things that the showrunners themselves said that they based, you know, that they took hints. Mm-hmm. How does Galadriel know the Dark Lord's might? Well, she must have known it. And they get this wonderful, I mean, which I thought were really effective, like mm-hmm. overlaps, when you know the first thing that Halbrand says to Galadriel on the raft is what. Galadriel then later says to Frodo, uh, the mirror of Galadriel. Sure. Yeah. So, you, I mean, it's, it, 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 it is, I'd say, it's deferential, it's, it's referential, meant- it's ignoring sources, but it's also, you know, you're dealing, they're, they're, they're taking, what is it, 150 pages from the appendices and trying to turn yeah. it into a massive, the, right. yeah, it, is, it has very little to do with Tolkien. And Agreed. I'm going to first to admit that. But you know, you've got to want, you want to stand on its own, um, you know, merits. Is it entertaining fantasy, yeah, television? I'd say it's way better than Game of Thrones, the Game of Thrones, which I, I found to be brutal, cruel, amoral, and dark, just like the books, rewarding. <laughs> Whereas the Rings of Power is, you know, it, we all know that it ends in defeat, we know that already, yeah, but it's about um, loyalty and. You know, also false Although, about sort of false friendship and also about false friendship yeah. and, um, and 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 deceit. Um, and, and I think that it's if you just watch it on its own merits, then it's entertaining and it's meaningful. If you watch it bearing and knowing everything that your viewers yeah. will know about <laughs> the history, uh, the film, well, so, so I guess it's never, never going to measure up, but so yeah, and that's the fair way to, to it's also very much about issues of isolation in that sense. It's about COVID, but it's also about political, it's also about political isolationism and the fact that you cannot be isolated. It begins with these isolated units like the Southlanders and like Numenor, mm-hmm. and it shows the. Um, that isolationism as a political ideology is disastrous. Well, um, it's, it's, it's much more positive, much more sort of liberal in its politics, I think. So, and so also, where, I, where I will disagree, I can see those themes. I can see the themes that you're mentioning, Nick. I, I, I will disagree in the in the delivery. I don't think they pulled that off very well. I think, especially with Numenor, I, I think their treatment of Numenor was rather two dimensional, and the the, the the Numenor that that was um, it's, it's extant in the in the works of the the second Tolkien world, um, or even a bit a bit of the first Tolkien world, is is so much 
I think, more worthy of almost its own season of Rings of Power. I would, that's what I was hoping for. Yeah. I, was, I was hoping they were going to do a, a season on Numenor. But there was... But it's part of the sort of the, 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 the practicalities. It's one of the things that sort of Peter Jackson does very well is he has a, the, 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 you know, the, the parallel plot lines running through particularly Lord of the Rings. Um, mm. And he learned that from Ralph Bakshi. Because if mm. you start comparing Peter Jackson's screenplay uh, with, um, with the actual Tolkien's novel, you'll realise that sort of Tolkien will have chapters and chapters and chapters um, about you know, Rohan and Helm's Deep and the Ents and so forth before we even yeah. get back to Frodo and Sam. Now, uh, Peter Jackson doesn't do that because he learned from Ralph Bakshi. I mean, another famous example would be you know, introducing Gar- uh, Scandal's uh, encounter with Saruman at Isengard as the hobbits are leaving the Shire. That's taken almost frame for frame from the Ralph Bakshi uh, movie. Mm. And, you know, that's one of the things that's, you know, Ralph Bakshi only got some things wrong, but he knew how to pace a movie. Um, and that's, you know, that's got carried on. And then there are, there are sort of very iconic scenes. So I think, yeah, he may well have worked having a whole season on Numenor. But, you know, on the other hand, why not just have the, the four or five plot lines running together? Because oh. you've always you've always got you know that that's that's how people watch that's how people consume you know visual media these days they they want to have those intercuts between the different stories. Agreed, but I think you could have had four or five different plot lines at the time of Numenor in the rise. There, there's so much to Numenor in the rise, but let's leave that aside for a second. I I like what you said earlier, which is that essentially Rings of Power has very little to do with Tolkien per se. It is that third world, and in that third world of Tolkien, you could have a Jackson version, which accords much more with the books, and you could have an Amazon version, which accords much more with something else that they had in mind when they're making it, or the way to bring Tolkien as a reflection of 21st century um, thought patterns and, 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 and present Middle-earth in that in that frame, which I think yeah, yeah, is but, much more of what uh, they're doing. <laughs> If you forgive me, Mike, I mean, I will say the Jackson films work really well because they appear to conform to the books. But of course, they don't. Well, there's a, uh, quite a few places they don't. But what do you think of? Yeah, for reasons we've just said in terms of you know the the intercutting of the Gandalf Saruman scene, but also you know that the whole bit where sort of you know, Elrond visits Aragorn before he's going to go on the paths hmm. of the dead. Sure. I mean, yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. They, the, they... The, the whole the whole re, the whole of Narsim. <laughs> Right, um, right, and the the the, uh, the Lothorian elves slaughtered in Helm's Deep, and all sorts of you know the the replacing of some characters for another, and the and the pseudo death of Aragorn in order yeah. to have cinematic cinematic end to the two towers. And exactly, you can go, yeah. you, you, in fact, we're going to we're coming out. Is, we, we, we're prepared to forgive Peter Jackson those changes or revisions or adaptations. Um, it's, I remember when the I wasn't going to go to see the, the Fellowship of the Ring because I thought that it was going to be like the Ralph Bakshi experience. Hmm. <laughs> um, and then I, then I saw a documentary, it's something in um, Britain called The South Bank Show, and I was just absolutely awestruck by the visual quality that it managed to make the unimaginable, yeah. ma- you know, imaginable. Present, yeah. visual. And so that, that I went and I enjoyed it thoroughly, but I also realised that it's, it's a far cry from the book and you know everyone will have this i mean i think i think they're a wonderful series of films um and i think they're a huge um success i mean they're, they're a major cinematic um achievement yeah um yeah. but you know if you press me then i'll say where's tom bombadil where are the barrier whites most importantly where's the scary of the shire let alone all the other um sort of like um plot 
divergences, but it works. Yeah. It works really well on the screen. And it's also it's lovely to see my children who are enjoying it and getting completely obsessed with the tiniest details. You know, they're quizzing me about the, 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 the you know, Daddy, what's what's Fair Dread's horse called? <laughs> oh, no, I don't know that. <laughs> but, um... If it works, then I think it needs to be, you know, recognised. And I think that, you know, yeah. we've got to give the room a little more time. We're just into season, we've just finished season one. They're putting a huge amount of uh, imaginative energy into it. It's not going to be Peter Jackson rebooted yeah. in the same way that Peter Jackson wasn't actually Tolkien rebooted. But on its own merits, I think we need to give it a bit more time and um, see, see how it pans out. And, I mean, I, having watched it three times, I think as a, you know, forget Tolkien, maybe. It just, you know, it's an enjoyable, thought-provoking and often very moving yeah, I, you see, I, this is where. Uh, go ahead, Michael. Go ahead. Before I jump in, I was just going to say I don't, I don't <clears throat> expect anything from Rings of Power uh, in terms of in terms of being able to match Tolkien. I don't expect it to even be the same as Jackson's films. I don't want it to be. I want it to be something creatively different. Um, the question I will have at the end of it is: Were they able able to capture to bring this back to a parallel to your book, Nick? There's something about Tolkien. Hmm that one finds to be appropriate in 21st century, in the, in the third decade of the 21st century, um, in our experiences. There's some, there's a series of universal qualities. I think you laid some of them out very nicely earlier in this conversation. Will Rings of Power, when it's done, when you look at the body, will it bring that same feeling? Will they be able to convey some of that to, to its audience in, in a way that creates a love for Middle Earth in its audience? Um, and if it does so, then I will, I will admit my um, error in my original, my opinion of season one. But it's got a tall hill to climb. I can give you, I can give you one example, which, um, which tries to tie all of those three experiences together. Lord of the Rings as a novel, the Peter Jackson movies and Lord of the Rings and the Rings of Power. We talked earlier about how Tolkien didn't know where he was going, how much uncertainty, what I call hesitancy, ambiguity there is in the novel. Peter Jackson was able, you know, perhaps partly by accident, but he was able to replicate that by filming every scene in many different ways. So the actors didn't know of their character development. And it's a bit like Casablanca, the, the movie Casablanca, mm. where nobody knew how it was going to end. Mm -hmm. um, and so people are acting in a bit of a different way. They're acting in a more sort of hesitant, exploratory way because of that. Because there's, 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 a, there's a sort of a, you, know, you all know the, the medieval uh, idea of the cloud of unknowing. There's a sort of yes. <laughs> a, a, a profound un, uncertainty and mysticism about this. And I think that's one of the reasons for the Peter Jackson films being so good. It's because you don't, he didn't know what was going to happen. The actors definitely didn't know. And that is part of the gets communicated to the audience, and also because the extended editions have different takes of the same scenes than the theatre hmm. edition has. So even watching the same film in two different versions, it's going to be a different experience. Now, the Razor Power does that to a certain extent because they did not tell Charlie Vickers, who plays Hal Brands, who he really was until halfway through the filming. Mm -hmm. but he's playing it in one way. <laughs> Then he suddenly realised who he really is, and as soon as my as soon as my my thirteen year old daughter finished it, and I you know thankfully there hadn't been any spoilers, she said we're going to have to watch that 
we'll never forget, aren't we? <laughs> you got to look like, yeah, yeah, it's one of those. Uh, uh, it's, it's, yeah. it's, 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 it's a bit like Emma buying, buying sort of Jane Austen. It's, you know, you, you, you know, it completely changes the, 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 the whole, um, everything that sort of. Yeah, yeah. Says, now that's, that's, that's really great. I think that's a great piece of, you know, sort of um, televisual, um, you know, direction to do that it's a really great place of uh, great example of um, sort of script writing if they can continue with those sorts of uncertainties then i think it'll be really exciting there won't there probably won't be such a, a huge reveal as, as yeah. the sound yeah but you know they're, they're clearly capable of, of, of being pretty deft uh, with, uh, with, 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 a, with a plot um so you know Fingers well, I think you have the money. I want it to be a success. I think you know. I think. I yeah, think I mean, I said, I, I said originally when I mean when they remember when they released that first image of uh, Finrod looking at the two trees. Yeah, uh, wonderful. Back, yeah. Like January, January, February Loved last it. year. It was, it was. I was like, that is a great rendition of it, uh, and and it started off so well for me. And I am like by default, I'm a critical person and I acknowledge that. And so it takes me a while to warm up to something. I'm going to have a hard time warming up to this because I know so much, like you said before, about what Tolkien wrote or what he, what was in that second world and all the ancillary papers. Um, and then I have but problems they, with... They, 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 they can't really use that. They, they can't they can't make it. I know. That is, no, that's one of their major problems the is things. they can't. I keep saying, I want what I, what I really want long-term is I want to see the story of Turin Turinbar, but I don't think anybody's ever going to touch that. So, um, there's there, 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 some wonderful fan trailers on YouTube that you doubtless know about with you know the film really yeah. sort of four parts. Um, and it's just you know, you just see the possibilities, yeah. Uh, but, but um, until the film rights are released, which might not ever happen, um, and then you want to get the right people doing it because. Yeah. Exactly. Peter Jackson, Alan Lee aesthetic has been impressed and, so profoundly uh, upon, upon the, the cinematic realization. Before you make a point, Michael, the one point I think about the Rings of Power, where if I were to say that the reason that for me it, it lacks some of the um, passionate fervor that's ar around Peter Jackson's films, for instance, is that it was created as a corporate exercise and not a passionate exercise. So Jackson came and he worked hard to sell it. He first went to the Weinstein Company. They wanted two films. Yeah. And then he went to Bob Shea at New Line. He's like, well, there weren't there three books? And then they made three books. And his he he worked hard to make this yeah. happen. Yeah. And I think the Rings of Power, like like, like Star Wars now, it lacks. there's not a passionate person and a personality driving it forward no matter what because it's become a well, corporate exercise. I think you see that a lot in a lot of other cultural, uh, particularly in Hollywood now, because it, it is so corporate now. Um, and, and I miss a little bit of that. Maybe that's, maybe that's wrong, I'm willing, but I think that's part of it where it lacks a little bit of the, the resonance that it would have if, if it had that sort of passion behind it. I don't well, know. It lacks, it lacks it's, the, it's, the, the back. I, mean, you, you I think it's worth remembering that you know, the Peter Jackson films, the, the, the three films of, in extended editions of three and a half hours each. Whereas we only had the first season of the Rings of Power, yeah, which true. is eight, eight episodes of an hour each, and we've got yeah. more seasons to come. So, um, we, 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 I think Tolkien, Tolkien was always a collaborator. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. um, let's not forget. I mean, he, I mean, he, he was reading out Lord of the Rings to the Inklings. It was yeah, C.S. Lewis who really sort of like made him finish it. 
Yes, right, right. Um, you know, he he wasn't he wasn't a sort of like a like like a single auteur. No, no, that's true. You know, he really relished. He was a huge supporter to other academics, particularly female academics like Slosin well, and Dutton, for example. I mean, so I think that I always, it, he, he would have seen the value in a in in, in a team effort. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I, I mean, also, I hope to, 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 to Milton Waldman, you know, he also talks about, you know, seeing his, 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 you know, Middle Earth as an area for other people to explore and develop and, you know, develop the their other, own. other minds and hands. Quotes. Other minds and hands. Yeah. 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 Uh, well, I think, I mean, you know, when you come out with volume two of the 21st century Tolkien, maybe the Rings of Power will, will have a couple of more seasons and we can talk about it at that point. Um, but yeah, I certainly don't want to offend any of your, your views. So no, no, it's, no, it's, it's hugely controversial. It's hugely controversial. How are, we, how are we supposed to learn anything good and new if we're not willing to challenge ourselves into whatever it is that we believe anyway? So we got to, you know, honestly, I, I, think, I think it's worth watching, even if it irritates, you know, if it irritates you to death, I think you need to be part, you need to be part of the debate. Yeah, I, I, well, I, I mean, I controversy is good for the clicks too. So, what? <laughs> true, I know. It feels so. Bad. There's nothing wrong. Honestly, nothing, nothing wrong with disagreeing on it. Um, I am interested. Is I, I'm very interested in reading your your the version that comes out where with yeah. your reaction to season one when it comes out, and then we'll uh, and then we'll have to maybe do a, a redux once uh, season two comes out <laughs> and we'll catch for thoughts. Sure. And, and uh, sure. have a real, have a real so, down. Shall guys, we shift we're, over? We're, we should shift over. This has been way too good of a conversation. All right. So thanks everybody for watching. Um, and if you want to follow Nick, he is on Twitter. I'm sorry, Professor Nick Groom. Um, unless you're on a podcast with him, you're not allowed to call him Nick. Just going to say that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, it's at uh, twitter.com slash, or his handle is prof underscore Nick underscore Groom. And um, you can interact there, of course. I'm sure he'll take some messages if you'd like. Uh, and then also, you can pre-order the book. I know it's pre-orderable on Amazon. Yes. Yep. You can pre-order it on Amazon, and we'll put some links down there. Both uh, is is the is it different in the UK versus the US? Are there different? Uh, yeah, um, this is one of those, one of those funny things. Um, that the UK version is called 21st Century Tolkien: What Middle Earth Means to Us Today. Oh. Whereas the US edition has a slightly different title which you will know better than me so i've not yet seen Tolkien it. in the 21st century the meaning of yeah, so you go. <laughs> they are the same book except the okay. the, the, okay. UK, the the uk hardback will be the early edition the us hardback will be the revised edition which has okay. the extra um, chapter on the rings of power and also some additional material on why i choose to capitalize in certain ways and um some corrections that many members of the Tolkien Society have suggested I look at again, some of which um, I agree with, some of which I didn't, but okay. I still thank people for, for engaging with the book. Yeah, well, I, uh, but, I mean, uh, I, it, the book was great. I, like, there's, you, you might, it, it goes into such detail and it's readable. It's not, um, it's not dry or boring, right? Because we, you're dealing with the issues that Tolkien thought about and things that came up while he was writing and while he was living, and then intersplicing it with all the different facts of, what was going on in his life at the time. Um, but, and so I, anyway, I, I just found it, the details, um, the readability it was, it was great. So I highly recommend it. Um, and you can uh, get it on Amazon or get it wherever. I think it's published by Pegasus books. So we, we do have our extended podcast, everybody. Um, we're going to jump into that. We're going to go through our uh, 10 questions, confessions from the comfy chair. Nick, I don't know if there's many, much more to talk about when it comes to uh, well, what, Hey, what are you drinking there? That looks mighty red. Is that a good, 
Um, yes, uh, multiple Chianos. It's, it, it, it's pretty late in the UK at the moment, so that's... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad we didn't put you to sleep, at least. That's good. That's good. No, of course, that's uh, been all right, wonderful. So... <laughs> it's been a real privilege to talk to you. It's really been an absolute oh, well, no, Thank our you. privilege is very nice. kind great. And I would be privileged, uh, boy, I'm, I'm really getting good at these segues here. I'd be privileged for you people who are listening. If you want to get the extended podcast, go to the uh, onering.com slash member and, uh, and join up. First month is free. And after that, it's $4 a month. You get access to our Discord channel, our extended podcast. Uh, we'll give you a code for discounts on our store. If you, if you want to like, you know, get a Tang War hat, that's always cool. Uh, but yeah, join us there. And we'll, uh, we'll jump on into our extended podcast. And uh, Michael, your standard sign off. Go for it. Take care, freeloaders. No. Bye. Oh, that was so sweet. <laughs> Take care. <laughs> All right. We'll see you on the other side, everybody.